Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I don't think it was a good idea to even maybe go to college for the arts. And I always think if I have a kid and they want to pursue any sort of art, am I going to tell them to go to college? I, I really don't think I will. And, I, and only for the reason of the loans. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Is there anything that I can even do about my private loans? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. How do I afford that? And need to talk about more. Is everybody just comfortable with living in debt? I'm Anna Sale. And this week, over two nights, I'm talking with you and with experts all about your questions about student debt. After we ran our series earlier this summer, we kept hearing from you. There's a lot more you want to know and need to say about student loans. You can go to deathsexmoney.org slash studentloans to see our coverage so far. But we wanted to have some conversations live in real time so we could talk more together about the best way to deal with your student loans. Tonight, Wednesday, September 13th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, you can join in to ask questions about what you should do with the student debt you already have. We're live on WNYC Radio in New York and on our Facebook page. Call in and be a part of that conversation. This episode is the conversation we had with you last night. It's all about what's structurally changed in the education system since the 2008 recession, who it's hurting the most, and how it's affecting your choices about what to do when it comes to higher education. Listen now and join us again tonight for our second and final night of live student loan call-ins. I am at KQED in San Francisco, and to start this hour, I'm joined by Rohit Chopra, who is here to answer all of your questions about student loan policy. He's a senior fellow at the Consumer Federation of America. That's a new job for him this year. Before that, he was the assistant director and the ombudsman for student loans at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Thank you so much for joining us from WNYC. Hi, Rohit. Hi, Anna. I want to start right off the top from a question we got over and over again from listeners since we started collecting student loan stories earlier this year. People are wondering whether the Trump administration is going to change the public service loan forgiveness program. We already, in fact, have a call about that program. Julie from Putnam Valley, New York, welcome to Death, Sex, and Money. Hi. Hi. What's your question for Rohit? Um, Well, I am banking on the fact that about seven years from now, after I 
continue my work with the Department of Education, my loans will be forgiven. And I'm wondering if the people who are now hitting that 10-year mark working for um, either nonprofit or government agencies are actually having their federal loans forgiven. Thanks for your question, Julie. And, and Rohit, first, can you describe how this program works and how it started, and then we can talk about its fate? Well, the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program ain't simple. It's pretty complex and convoluted. Uh, if you have a certain type of federal loan and you're on a certain type of repayment plan, then after 10 years of those payments, the rest will be forgiven. And I hate using the word forgiven because no one who enters public service or had to borrow to do it should feel like they did something wrong. Now, there's a lot of problems with this program, and a lot of people are concerned about it, uh, but we can help solve those problems. And do you think, is, is the actual existence of the program something that's being debated in Washington? Yeah, there are many who believe that this program just shouldn't exist, that it doesn't matter uh, who you work for, uh, you should just be able to enroll in a simple repayment plan. But I think we do need to do something to make sure that people who want to be teachers, people who want to serve in the military, that their student debt doesn't deter them from that. If I had to guess, uh, if changes are made by Congress and the president, I'm crossing my fingers that it will only impact uh, future borrowers, not today's borrowers. So for everyone wondering what should I do, I recommend that you continue on the income-driven repayment plans. These are the plans that let you pay your student loans as a percentage of your income. That lets you make sure you have enough in your budget to pay for your other expenses, even uh, stash away some savings. And after 10 years, that the rest should go away. But even in the worst uh, situation where the program has ended, at least you have a comfortable repayment plan uh, that you can definitely afford. And Julie, just a question for you about your experience with, with the program. Are you, are you definitely enrolled in the program? Did you find it easy to figure out how to, whether, you, whether you qualified? No, it is not easy. Um, it isn't, there is no, as far as I know, and I'm somebody who has asked 100 questions to 100 different people at my loan company, um, there isn't really a way to enroll and only, um, after a few years now, only last month was I told, oh yeah, there's a form that you can get your employer to fill out and you should do that annually so that you don't have to go back and do that retroactively 10 years from now. But, um, it's, there's not really, uh, no, I don't feel secure. Like, oh, I'm enrolled in that program. And I don't have to worry about it. So Anna and Julie, I really recommend uh, ForgiveMyStudentDebt.org. It's one of the best websites to help people navigate through all of this red tape and clunky forms. And, and you're not alone. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have filled out these forms only to find that they're, they have the wrong type of loan or the wrong repayment plan. Uh, so it's not a program that's been easy to navigate, uh, and it needs some major fixes. And you said that what website is, is ForgiveStudentLoans.org? ForgiveMyStudentDebt.org. 
forgivemystudentdebt.org. We will also we'll put it in the show notes for this episode, and we'll put it up on our website as well if you want to come back and check for that. Jeff in Inwood also has a call about this program. Jeff, welcome to Death, Sex, and Money. Hi. Um, good evening. Thank you for taking my call. Um, while I was on hold, I wasn't able to hear the answer to the question that, that the previous person had um, about whether or not the people that are um, maxing out this year, that this, this is their 10th year, whether they, they are um, getting their loans forgiven. Um, so that's the first question, follow-up to the previous person. But my question is, I'm in this program, and um, I just recently signed up for this last uh, this year in January, but I had previously worked for a nonprofit for uh, three years in the in the late 2000s um, and um, at the time that the I mean in, uh, from 2009 to 2011 at the time that the student loan forgiveness program was in existence but I didn't know about the program then so can I retroactively um, apply to have the money that I already paid towards my student loans um, considered as a part of this the student loan repayment plan that I'm on now Okay, Jeff, thanks for your question. So first question, if you're in your 10th year row hit, should you consider yourself safe? Well, a lot of people who think they're safe are in for a rude awakening because they are finding out that they have the wrong type of federal student loan or they were enrolled in the wrong type of repayment plan. You must have what's called a federal direct loan. Uh, You can't have one of those federal loans that you got from Sally Mae or a bank. And you must be in the standard repayment plan or one of the repayment plans that is tied to your income. Uh, There are some other repayment plans that don't count. So his question about uh, will he be able to rely on it, as of October 1st, uh, in theory, that's going to be when the first people will qualify for for loan forgiveness because it will be 10 years since the program was created. But I have a hunch that very few people are getting loan forgiveness uh, because of how complex this program is. Now, you can get credit for your old uh, service in at a nonprofit or government. All you do is fill out one of these employer certification forms uh, it attests that you are working for government or a nonprofit, and you'll submit that uh, to the loan servicer. You'll be able to check uh, one of the servicer's websites to see if your service counted and whether you were in the right loan with the right repayment plan. So for many people who had loans before 2010, most of them had Uh, a different type of federal loan. And I know it's complex, but I really urge people to look at that website, forgivemystudentdebt.org. It really helps you navigate through everything. Rohit, when you start answering a question by saying rude awakening, that is is not what people want to hear. But thank you for that website. I hope if you have questions about whether you are eligible, you find some answers there. And now, Rohit, I want to pull back a little bit to to ask you about how we got to this place where we have more than $1.4 trillion in student debt in the United States. Why did it start accelerating? Is it because colleges and universities wanted to pay for more administrators and more amenities on campus and they just started charging students and families more? Or what's been the main driver? Well, it's a complicated story. You know, the common belief is it's because tuition 
went up. But when we really break down that $1.4 trillion, we see a more nuanced story. So if we rewind 10 years, there was only around $550 billion of federal student loans owed. Uh, So student debt has Hmm. way more than doubled over this period of time. And what we see is that student debt is actually rising faster than college tuition rose. And it really rose very quickly when the economic crash uh, reverberated throughout the economy. So this isn't just a story about college getting more expensive. It's also a story about families uh, barely scraping by. You know, in in the Great Recession, Mm -hmm. families lost so much. They lost their home equity. They lost so much in savings because of unemployment. They lost a ton of value in their retirement accounts. And all of that meant that it was much tougher to help their children go to college. And at the same time, a tough economy meant that more people went back to college to brush up yeah. on their skills and prepare for the labor market. Uh, and and you know what really kills me, Anna, is that even for people who were graduating in this tough economy, many of them aren't even making a dent in their student debt. Their balances are actually growing because so many of the jobs that we're finding college graduates land in are really not that much higher in wages than many uh, graduates that typically, many jobs that typically go to high school graduates. So this, you have this triple whammy where college mm-hmm. tuition is going up, where, you're, where families are having a tougher time contributing to the costs of college and new grads landing in jobs where they can barely stay afloat. I'm Anna Sale, and this is a special live call-in episode of Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast from WNYC Studios. And we are taking your calls about student debt. The phone number is 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Call with your questions about student loan policy. And also, if you're one of those students that graduated or came out into the labor market after the recession or went back to school during the recession and looked around and realized you have a lot more debt than people who went through school just a few years ahead of you. I want to hear your story too. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. We're going to take another caller. David is on the line. Hi, David. Hi. I'm David, you're in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn? Yes, my my partner went to, my husband went to Pratt, graduated with honors, mm-hmm. no less, and won many awards, but it was hard to find a decent job. And um, he ended up using credit card to pay for his business, and then he um, we ended up getting married three years ago, then to get 20 years, and it turns out he has a $300,000 debt federal mm-hmm. loan for his college years uh, with late fees and an interest. It's more than the original loan. And I, I own a lot of property, and if I, I'm, I'm 13 years older than my partner. If I pass away, I don't want... Would he pick up or would he get my property, or would he um, or would it be garnished by the federal government? Do you know what the answer is? 
David, that's a good question. Rohit, do you know the answer to that question? Well, let me just say that uh, your partner's definitely not alone. There are now over 8 million people in America who have defaulted on their federal student loan. And according to analysis I've done, it's now at a rate of 3,000 a day, more than one every 28 seconds. So in in the case of uh, if property gets transferred, typically speaking, when you default on a student loan, uh, the government can garnish your wages, they can take your tax refund, uh, they can even take your social security check. And one of your ways to protect yourself against some of these actions is to do what's called rehabilitation. You can rehabilitate your federal student loan and get back in good standing. Uh, and it's it's new rules that were put into effect a few years ago, and it will allow you to enroll in a repayment plan that's a percentage of your income. Uh, so you know it can be affordable and you won't have to worry about all these surprise actions of the government going after you. Rohit, I want to ask you about bankruptcy and student debt. That's a question we heard a lot from listeners. It can be very difficult, if not impossible, to discharge student debt with bankruptcy, unlike other types of debt. Where did that policy come from? Uh, I imagine lobbyists and student loan industry lawyers, because the data shows that changing this in 2005 uh, for a specific type of private student loans didn't really have a reduction in pricing uh, and didn't really benefit the market much at all. Uh, That being said, I do think we need to reform the bankruptcy code for student loans, but I don't think it's a solution. I don't think people want to file for bankruptcy and destroy their credit and their ability to get a mortgage or a credit card or an auto loan. What we really need is to really restructure all of this student debt so it's actually affordable to enroll people in programs so that they can get their loans reduced under existing benefit programs and really hold accountable some of these student loan servicers. You know, the first caller talked about their student loan company not really giving them information. The CFPB and states have sued companies like Navient for a whole sort of abuses against borrowers. The Justice Department caught them cheating tens of thousands of military members. So we've also got to do something to hold these companies accountable as well. It can't just be uh, bankruptcy that fixes this. Corwin in Rigo Park, welcome to Death, Sex, and Money. What's your question for Rohit? Yeah, thank you very much for taking my call. Um, uh, so a couple a couple points, actually. So first one is, I'm wondering what the impact on the rate of borrowing money uh, has increased because, you know, A, students are actually anticipating a complete forgiveness of student loan debt. So we're seeing uh, wildly reckless, you know, financial lending here because they're just taking money, and they're not anticipating ever actually paying it back. And then B, even if it's not completely forgiven, the rate is so low. Even if you borrow $10,000 now, don't even apply it to your semester and then put it in an ETF that you can actually reap a greater return than the loan ever was. So with so much cheap free credit, it's just in the interest of any person to max out their debt. 
constantly. Uh, I feel like we really need to, to turn the spigot off, so to speak. So I was wondering what your speaker felt about that. Thank you. So, Rohit, what do you say to that? What do you say about cheap credit enabling people to get money, save it, get a good return, and also presuming that because of the levels of student debt that are out there now that they'll never have to pay it back, that it'll somehow get forgiven? Well, I think there are very few borrowers out there uh, that are looking at the student loan program as a way to reinvest in stocks and ETFs. Uh, But I, I actually take the point that the caller is is raising in a different respect. You know, right now, the Department of Education and these accrediting agencies are rubber stamping a lot of colleges and saying to borrowers, this is a school that's going to prepare you for a good job and a good future. But you know what? A lot of these schools, especially some in the for-profit sector, really have different interests in mind. Uh, And we've seen a few bad actors who really look at some students as nothing more than a dollar sign. We have to make sure that if the government is going to be investing through loans and grants uh, in these colleges and in students, that that college better be looking out for the student's future and not just their executive's uh, bonus or their shareholders' returns. So I agree, we've got to really get these incentives right to make sure that no one's really taking advantage of the system. I'm less worried about borrowers fleecing the system than many big companies who seem to look at the federal loan program uh, with dollar signs in their eyes. I want to bring Natalie in San Diego into this conversation. Hi, Natalie. Welcome to Death, Sex, and Money. Hi, thank you, Anna. Sure. What's your question for Rohit? Well, I have been listening to the podcast over time, and I'm a little fired up personally about this issue. Um, And, you know, he mentioned what we really need to do is kind of allow people to restructure this debt. And I'm one of the ones watching my balance just go up because I don't even pay the interest on my loans. But my question is, you know, what do we do? We're stuck here, again, just watching the balance increase, not really knowing what to do. Um, you know, who who lobbies for these policy changes? Who do we contact? Who do we push to maybe get a little bit of movement on that front? Rohit, what's your answer, Natalie? Well, what do you do? It's certainly true that the playing field just does not feel even between borrowers and the companies that really have a vested interest in this system. We've got to obviously push very hard, um, and I encourage people to join local advocacy groups, sign up for uh, initiatives to reform student debt, uh, like Student Debt Crisis and other organizations. But... But I think everyone also has to realize that we've got to fight, but we also got to take care of ourselves. And that doesn't mean just being an observer uh, when it comes to your student loans. When you learn how you can conquer your student debt, 
through some of these programs like the income-driven repayment programs where you can get forgiveness, where you can cap your payment as a percentage of your income, when you can learn how to get out of default uh, without having to make a big lump sum payment to a debt collector, you got to help others because too many people with student debt have stayed silent and that's in some ways what allows this broken system to persist. Rohit Chopra policed the student loan industry for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and is now a senior fellow at the Consumer Federation of America. Thank you so much for coming into WNYC and joining us. Thank you, Anna. After the break, we are taking more of your calls and taking a look at who's been hit hardest by student debt. Tracy McMillan Cottom is joining us. She's the author of Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges and the New Economy. Her research has shown how for-profit schools target non-traditional college students, students from low-income families, underrepresented minorities, first-generation college students, and single moms. Does that describe you? Call in with your student debt stories, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. You can also watch along on Facebook Live on the Death, Sex, and Money Facebook page. More of your calls after the break. grow up in Bangladesh, right? The U.S. is like the fantasy land where everything is so easy and possible. So that was the impression I had. I had no idea that college was going to be so expensive. Hi, I'm Anna Sale, and you're joining us for a special live call-in episode of Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast from WNYC Studios. And that voice you just heard is Sharif, an immigrant from Bangladesh who grew up low-income and now looks back at his student debt with regrets. He's just one of the people we have heard from during our student loan coverage. You can see all of it at deathsexmoney.org slash student loans. But we wanted to take more of your calls and talk more about what to do with your student debt. The phone number to call is 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. And I'm joined now by Tressie McMillan Cottom. At one point, she was a recruiter for for-profit colleges, including ITT Tech, the for-profit college network that shuttered its campuses recently. She left ITT in 2007 and is now a sociology professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. She's also the author of Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy, a book that came out this year. She's joining me from WCVE Public Radio in Richmond, Virginia. Hello, Tressie. Hello, Anna. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us. I want to talk a bit about for-profit colleges. Talk mm-hmm. about the link between for-profit colleges, what used to be known as as career colleges, and mm-hmm. student debt. Well, the link is uh, very similar to what your previous guest, Rohit, was uh, discussing. What has happened in the for-profit college sector and its relationship to student loan debt is just the most extreme example of what has happened for millions of people across uh, higher education. So when we're talking about the weaknesses of the student uh, debt crisis and we're talking about the weaknesses of higher education, what we're really talking about underneath that is the weakness in our uh, system of upward mobility in this country and the importance Mm. and centrality of college to that dream. What we're saying is that All of the excesses of higher education expansion, the rising cost of tuition, 
the risk shift of paying for college yourself as opposed to having your family support or perhaps more critically having an employer support uh, your uh, higher education attainment. All of that has happened for everyone, but it has really happened the most for those who find themselves in the for-profit college sector. So what has happened in for-profit colleges is what's happened for all of us to some extent. And who are the student populations that have been hit hardest mm-hmm. by this in the for-profit college realm? It is the, the shortest answer to that is it is the people who needed college the most, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So if we think about college being able to transform your life, um, and not just your life, but being able to transform the lives of your children, right? It is supposed to be your entry point into the American middle class. Uh, it's supposed to put a ceiling beneath which, you, a, a floor beneath which you can't really fall um, in our economic system. Well, the people who needed that security the most are those who find them, tend to find themselves overrepresented in the for-profit college sector. Uh, most importantly, women. Whenever we're talking about for-profit colleges, and in fact, when we're talking about student loan debt, we're really talking about a problem that's impacting women the most. So something like two-thirds, a full two-thirds of that uh, $1.4 trillion student loan debt number that you mentioned earlier is held by women. And women Mm. are overrepresented in for-profit colleges, especially the most vulnerable women, women of color, poor women, and especially single mothers. I want to bring Kanika in Brooklyn into the conversation. Kanika, what is your story with student loans? Hi. um, Thanks for for taking me. Um, So I recognize or identify with a lot of what you're um, speaker just said, I'm a woman of color. Um, my parents are immigrants. I'm a minority. Um, when I went to college, we we were uh, lower, you know, middle class. We were hit really hard by the recession and a lot of personal tragedy. So by the time um, it came for me to come to college, um, I had no resources. We had no college fund for myself and my two other siblings who were going to school at the exact same time. Um, so Student loan debt was really the only way for me to, you know, go to school and get a degree. And I was, a, you know, an honor student, AP classes. There was really no reason for me not to be able to attend school other than the finances behind it. And so, so do, in you my feel, mind, do you feel oh, glad ahead. that you took out this student debt to get an education? Oh, How do you feel about your loans now? I regret them so much. It's, it's something that I carry around uh, very shamefully. It's my biggest like skeleton in my closet. I don't tell my number to anyone, not my closest friends. Only like mm. one or two people might know the actual number because it's such a humiliating number for me. Um, and Your number you know, meaning I mean, your balance, how much yes, you owe. Yes. And what, um, what kind of school did you go to? I went to a private university. Um, and are you able to keep up with your loan payments with your current work? Um, so uh, I... I can right now. I'm I'm on you know a long repayment program. Uh, I work in public service. I'm actually a nurse, and I signed up for the public service loan forgiveness program. And when they assessed my income, they um, the amounts that the income driven repayment would actually end up having me pay back all my loans under ten years. But that didn't allow me to actually pay rent and put any money in savings or you know, pay for food or car expenses. So I had to withdraw from the public service loan forgiveness program because it doesn't take into account your debt and your other life expenses 
um, private loans and other issues. It really only takes like your public, you know, your federal debt. So I am managing my payments, but I have very little saved uh, up. I have no hopes of buying uh, a car or a house or anything like that for at least 30 or 40 years down the line. It's something that is just out of the question for so many people in my generation. Kanika, thank you for your call and and best of luck to you. Um, (laughs) Tressie, I want to ask you more about student debt and the share that's held by women. There's new stats out from the Institute for Women's Policy Research that says that 30 percent of single mothers in college attend Mm for-profit schools. And in reading about this, talked about how for-profit schools have figured out how to make it seem doable and and thinking about Mm -hmm. child care for students. Why is this a bad thing that they're trying to figure out how to make college accessible Mm -hmm. for single moms? Well, the thing is that college, we don't want college to be accessible just to be accessible. Um, It's actually pretty Mm -hmm. easy to make uh, college accessible to everyone. We could open up a diploma meal on every corner tomorrow and everyone could go to college. What Mm -hmm. we really mean when we say we want to increase access to college is we want to increase access to what college affords people, which is a better quality of life. So college is supposed to be a way station, not an end unto itself. So what we have seen is in making it easier um, for some of our more vulnerable students. And really, it is hard for me to imagine a group of people, certainly individuals uh, differ a lot, but a group of people more vulnerable um, to the promise of higher education than a working class or poor single mother. Right. Um, We know statistically how few resources they bring to the higher education process. The ability to pay is just one of those resources. The really big resource is time, right? Having the Mm -hmm. time to go through the bureaucracy of higher education and especially the traditional college process. Um, So we can make it easy by lowering the barriers, which is certainly what many for-profit colleges have done. They've made it easy for you to enroll. And in fact, you can usually walk in one day and leave that day an enrolled student. They've made it easy for you to start. They do things like order your transcripts for you, handle all the bureaucracy for processing your federal student aid. They order your textbooks for you. They're waiting for you on the first day of class. And those are all wonderful things. If when you arrive, the education that you are receiving has the potential to positively change your life. What we have found is that the high cost of for-profit colleges and the relative low resources of the likely students, especially single moms, means that the risk of failure for them is so high that even if they do everything right, go to school and actually finish, which for the record, the typical for-profit college student won't do, But even if they do everything right and they finish, they have far more debt than they can usually Mm. justify with the labor market outcomes of having attended the school. So college hasn't positively transformed their life. And in fact, for perhaps the first time in the history of higher education in the United States, going to college can make your life worse. I'm Anna Sale, and this is a special live call-in episode of Death, Sex, and Money, the podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm talking with Tressie McMillan Cottom. She's the author of Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. And we're taking your calls. The the phone number to call is 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. I want to bring Wilson in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, into the conversation. Hi, Wilson. 
Hello, how are you? Hi, what is your experience with student debt? Um, well, I was just thinking about um, how we need to bring more information and um, knowledge as far as like how to, um, you know, how to finance college in high school. Like, mm-hmm. you know, did you have an ex- when you where did you go to high school? I'm sorry. Where did you go to high school? So I went to high school in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm from the South, but I do live in Brooklyn now. And I went to, um, you know, an elite school uh, in Tennessee, which was expensive. And I, you know, financed it through mostly grants and scholarships, but I did take out loans. And when I went into um, undergrad, I thought I was going to be a lawyer and actually like walked well, you know, worked in an immigration law firm and, like, did that and realized I wanted to be an artist. And so coming out, you know, you know, I didn't want to get an office job. And so I, like, worked in restaurants and, like, was kind of paying my my um, my payments, you but not really. Loan payments, with, kind of. Uh-huh. Kind of, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my loans went into default, and then I um, had to eventually pay them out of that, and which I did. And then I decided that I wanted to move to New York um, because I'm a writer, and I feel like I need to be here. And I went to grad school here, took out more loans after getting um, my loans out of default originally. And so, like, it's, you know, it's blown up, and, you know, I'm still an artist. New York is expensive. And so I'm wondering, like, first of all, like, if I feel like if I had better information, I probably would have gone to a public school. Um, I Like, I'm from Tennessee. Tennessee now has, like, started their, you know, free community college program, which I think was great. And I think most schools should be doing that. Most states should be doing that. And also, like, I also um, am a lecturer at a, a community college here in New York. And, like, I feel like the public schools are, are where it's at. Like, people shouldn't be putting themselves in debt for... In these private schools. Well, yeah. Wilson, thank you, for, thank you for sharing your story. Tressie, I'm, I'm curious. You, you, at one point in your career, were a recruiter for for-profit colleges. What do you tell students now when they are thinking about what kind of school to go to, how much mm-hmm. debt is worth it, and, mm-hmm. you know, how to figure out the cost-benefit analysis? Yeah, so I think this is, uh, Wilson uh, gives us a great opportunity to speak both, I think, to uh, his story and to Kanika's story a little earlier, which is um, that something like cost-benefit analysis of college is a choice that not everybody can afford for themselves. Mm. Um, So one of the first things I found in the hundreds of students that I interviewed for my book and in my personal experience in for-profit colleges, and frankly, in my own personal life um, as a woman of color from the South, the child of a single parent, um, was that very few people outside of an elite subset of students sit down and do a cost-benefit analysis of higher education, right? People aren't making choices that way. They aren't using a spreadsheet to decide where to attend, um, mostly because most people can't afford to choose college that way. 
So one of the first things that tends to happen for students who find themselves outside of the privilege of being able to make that kind of choice is if you have anyone in your family who relies upon you, and not just a child, although that's the way we most commonly think of it, but you know, for many people, depending on your culture, you're taking care of siblings, you may be taking care of parents or grandparents, you have a family life and a unit that you're embedded in, and you're important to that unit being successful. For many of those people, picking up and cho- and moving to the cheapest college option is a type of trade-off of quality of life and cost that not everybody can make. Hmm. Right mm-hmm. now, pursuing the least expensive option in higher education far too often means stopping your life. And when mm. you are poorer and you are part of networks where the people in them are less are more likely to be poorer uh, than, say, your typical upper middle class uh, traditional age student, making a cost benefit analysis for college looks more like this. I either go to the college down the street or the one that will take me at whatever they're charging me or I don't go to college at all. Right. And when that's your cost benefit analysis, what most people find is that whatever the tuition burden, whatever the student loan debt burden and potential, not going to college seems so risky that for them, taking on the student loan debt in the short term is really the only viable option. It's the only it's the only way to feel like they're investing in their future and it's what's accessible. That's right. And in fact, this is what all of our public policy has designed been designed to tell people that if you want to be employable in the new economy, you will go to college and you will go to college at all costs and you will go to college indefinitely, meaning you will go back to college every time you need to brush up on your skills. The labor market is telling us that if you want a one of the dwindling good jobs available in our economy, one that provides you good pay, stable pay, benefits, promotion ability, a 401k, retirement, health care, that if you want one of those jobs, you've got to go to college. Well, when that happens, and not everybody has the same freedom of choice to choose where they'll go to school, you've got a perfect scenario for making college seem both too expensive on one hand and indispensable on the other. Tressie McMillan Cottom is the author of Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy and a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Coming up, we are taking more of your calls. The phone number is 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. And I want to know, if you look at your loan balance now, your student loan balance, do you think it was worth it? Call and tell us your story, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. More calls after the break. My mom and I were sitting at the dining room table just looking at all of the numbers that we had been given that were just impossible to figure out. Like, we could not pay that much. So it was at that moment where I just said, wow, (laughs) if I went to Louisville, look how much more money I would save. 
I'm Anna Sale, host of the Death, Sex, and Money podcast from WNYC, and we've been taking a deep dive together with our listeners into student loans with a series called Our Student Loan Secrets. You can find that at deathsexmoney.org slash studentloans. Tonight, we are taking your calls about student debt, and we are doing the same thing tomorrow. Come with your questions for how to manage the student debt you already have, whether to consolidate, how to prioritize loans when you've got many, how much to pay toward loans and how much to save for other things like retirement or a house or your kid's education. That's tomorrow on WNYC at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm joined now by Anya Kamenetz from the NPR Ed Team. She is also the author of the book Generation Debt. Welcome, Anya. Thanks, Anna. I want to ask you a big question as we talk about student debt, and that is generally in this country, in this moment, are you still better off in terms of your long-term earning potential if you have a degree, a college degree, than if you don't? I mean, the simple answer to that is yes. And of course, it comes with some fine print. I would start by saying that people are not statistics. Everyone's an individual. Um, I also think people should look more at the graduation rate when they talk about the, the value of a college degree because only 59% of people who start college finish within six years by the latest statistics. Um, that said, you know, all the people that are pushing higher education and, and the promises that, um, uh, you know, Dr. McMillan Cottom talks about so, uh, you know, importantly, they're very real. You know, behind that myth, there is a reality that if you don't have a college degree, it can be difficult to get ahead in this economy. I want to bring Chanel and Sunset Park, Brooklyn, into the conversation. Chanel, how do you think about the loans that you took out? Do you feel good about them? Um, I don't really feel good about them. I have a different situation where I went to school for music, so I went to conservatories. And I was lucky enough to get, you know, scholarships to go. So I ended up taking out loans for instruments. And, you know, I really don't think it's a good idea. Looking back on it, I don't think it was a good idea to even maybe go to college for the arts, for music, for graphic design. I think you're better off taking a private tutor or private instruction or, you know, um, seeking out artists that teach at those schools and, and you know, maybe study with them privately. I, don't, I just don't think it was worth it because, you know, the schools influence how you, yo, this, you should buy this instrument, that's going to get you into the orchestra or whatever it is. I really think it was, it's not a great idea, you know, looking back on it. And I always think if I have a kid, and they want to pursue any sort of art, am I going to tell them to go to college? I, I really don't think I will, and, I, and only for the reason of the loans. I don't think there's any other real reason besides you can't make the money back to being an artist when you come out of school that uh, versus the loans that you have uh, incurred. It's just impossible to do that as an artist. Um, Chanel, thank you. Thank you for your call. I I appreciate it. Taking out loans for instruments when you're told that's the way to get an orchestra position. Jonah in Kent City, Missouri, what is your student debt story? Hi. um, Hi, Jonah. Hi. So my student debt story is a little bit different than a lot of your other callers. And I feel like I should preface it by saying that I consider myself to be incredibly lucky and quite frankly, compared to a lot of your callers, uh, they would probably think the same. Um, I am in a practice. I'm a practicing attorney. Went to school out east, 
And um, I'm actually back in the Midwest now. And um, my student loan story is that I have a lot of it, lower than pretty much anybody I've spoken to. I went to a couple of private universities. And my my concern is that, um, and a lot of colleagues of mine that are in a similar position where I think, um, you know, we've sort of been lucky enough to, to get the, the coveted jobs that people refer to as coveted jobs, meaning um, stable benefits, et cetera, as your guest was referring to. Um, we have the massive amount of student loan debt, and to have the other things that adults, married folks with children look for, whether it be a house, car, retirement savings, et cetera, uh, I think a lot of us have turned to the various forms of income-based repayment plans that I think were touted as the main way for um, folks with a lot of student loan debt to be able to live the life of an adult or somebody who did take on that education uh, to pursue the quote-unquote American dream and not be saddled with so much debt. And at the end of that rainbow would be the loan forgiveness after 10, 20, or 25 years, depending upon the program. But there's a caveat that I feel like is not really readily addressed, which is um, what's referred to in the tax code as cancellation of debt income, which means that if you have a debt that's canceled, the IRS can say the amount of the debt that was forgiven is income in the year in that it was forgiven. And so I feel like a lot of folks that are in the same position as me are trying to ignore the fact that we're sort of sitting on this ticking time bomb and don't really know what's going to happen to us in 20 years. Um, when the large student loan debt that we have, a lot of whom aren't even covering the interest. So yeah. the income-based yeah. repayment is low enough to where the debt's increasing. And then at the end of that 20-year period, you have a huge, potentially huge tax hit. And I don't know if um, if any of... Yeah, your, I want to uh, talk to other- Anya about that. Jonah, thank you for sharing your story, because Anya, that is one that we heard a lot from listeners as we were, as we were collecting student loan stories. When you have these massive balances, particularly from, from graduate school, mm-hmm. and you figure out a way to make your monthly payment, but then you're looking at this giant IRS penalty when your loans are forgiven. When when you when you look at the share of student loan debt, how much is these massive amounts that that people who've gone to graduate schools? How much of it is those kinds of scenarios? Well, you know, it, it depends on whether you're looking at people that default or just the average in general. Um, obviously, that's you know the six figure debts that you see with medical school graduates, some some uh, law school graduates. Uh, pharmacy graduates, those are the very high end and the far end, and they don't necessarily typify the people who even get into the most trouble with student loans, right? It's important to remember that the folks that are most likely to default on student loans are those with just a low four figures of, of debt and and no degree. Um, that said, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't mean that we forget about the concerns of folks like Jonah um, and the various wrinkles in fine print. And I think another important point that he makes in his story is that you know, the rules just have kept changing on people and something that you signed up for one year, whether it's a state teacher repayment program or whether it's public service loan forgiveness, it's hard to say over the life of that loan and, and really people's lifetimes, their whole careers, what exactly is going to happen. And so people live with this anxiety hanging over them. And I think that's something that you've gotten to so well in these episodes that it can be very hard to make financial decisions when you, when you just have that uncertainty that you don't know what's going to happen. 
I want to bring Nick in Butler, New Jersey, into the conversation. Nick, welcome to Death, Sex, and Money. Do you think your student debt was worth it? Um, I, I do. What was your story? So I, I went to a four-year college um, in northern New Jersey, and I, I, you know, stayed in that place because that's where I, I knew I wanted to be. Um, my, my college gave me the opportunity to, to find work, and all of my professors, especially my core majors, um, were very understanding um, about where I was coming from financially. Um, and they found me work off of campus before they they made me a TA on campus. You know, I, I was able to work on campus as a teaching assistant, uh, limited to, I think, 15 hours a week, if I remember correctly. And then... Um, you and know, that helped you pay off the, your debt? So... So how much of what, when you were taking out student loan debt, how much were you thinking about what your earning was going to be after you got out of school? Um, I mean, the <clears throat> I was thinking about it quite a bit, um, to be fair and honest. Uh, my The only reason I went to the lengths of college was for the sake of having that, 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 uh, that way over point. To, to have the bachelorette degree, the bachelor's degree, um, in the event that I wanted to go to grad school and try to become a teacher or something, that that's why I got it. But I mean, I looked at what I was making, working roughly 35 to 55 hours a week as a freelancer, and then looking at the other 15 hours a week that I'd make as a TA, and then thinking about how much time is freed up once I'm not dedicating 30 some odd hours of my life to studying and doing homework and writing papers and thought, wow, if I'm making this much at... 19 years old in a couple of, you know, small-time gigs, when I get out, I, I should be able to at least ride relatively sanely. Well, Nick, thank you for sharing your story. And, and Anya, I want to ask you about that. As kind of the awareness of student loan debt and how monthly payments can affect you long into adulthood, as that has grown, is there now sort of downward pressure on any of the costs of education? Are are families, students becoming sort of more critical consumers? You know, I wrote about this uh, a a couple of months ago uh, because there actually has been, I think, a change in the conversation. Obviously, we saw in the most recent presidential campaign a couple of different candidates talking about free college tuition. We've seen several states, including New York State, where I live, um, announcing with great fanfare that they have free college tuition programs. And the word free, you know, again, there's often a lot of fine print around it, but I think it does kind of point to the fact that... um, you know, the equation that had held true for uh, at least a couple generations that, you know, college uh, is always uh, worth it. It's a commo- it's worth it at any price. Families should do whatever they can. Um, that's wearing thin a little bit. And I think that families are ready to have the conversation about value. They're ready to look at community colleges, look at public options. And the fact that, uh, you know, states and, and even localities, you know, Kalamazoo, Michigan was one of the places in the country that first got into this idea of we're going to promise everyone a free college. Uh, degree, um, that this can be something that really brings a lot of light and hope to young people who are growing up in a certain area, um, I think is is a sort of a positive direction. Um, even if, you know, those programs may not be perfectly designed, they may not pay for everything, but um, at least it's on the table now. At least people are saying, hey, breaking the backs of, of families and of students is not the only way to get more people uh, an education. 
And speaking of hope, just one quick question. There was a viral headline in the New York Times in July. As paperwork goes missing, private student loan debts may be wiped away. <laughs> it turned out it only had to do with $5 billion in private loans. Where only $5 billion. $4 trillion. Yeah. So how closely should people who have a lot of student debt be watching these lawsuits quickly? I think people should be watching like a hawk if they have any debt out there because it's a very complex and messy system. There are a lot of different oversight um, organizations. There's obviously been a change of leadership in the education department. If you have student loans, keep your paperwork, keep copies of it, and, and make sure you dot every I and cross every T. Thank you so much to Anya Kamenetz and for all of you for calling in. Anya is an education correspondent at NPR. She's the author of Generation Debt, as well as several other books, including the forthcoming book, The Art of Screen Time. Check it out. Anya, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you, Anna. You have been listening to a live call-in special from the Death, Sex, and Money podcast. This was just the first of two nights of live conversation about student debt. You can find our entire series about student loans and share your story at deathsexmoney.org slash studentloans. Tomorrow night, part two of these live conversations is 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern time on WNYC at WNYC.org and on the Death, Sex, and Money Facebook page. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, and Emily Botine, with help tonight from Jessica Miller, Ursula Summer, and Asher Stockler. Thanks to Andrew Dunn for his original scoring. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Jason Isaac is our engineer in New York. Howard Gelman and Steve Asragadu are engineering me here at KQED in California. You can find Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Twitter, at Death, Sex, Money, and on Facebook, where you can watch a video of this broadcast. And if you like this kind of conversation and you want to hear more of it, please support us. Go to deathsexmoney.org slash donate to chip in. Mostly, thank you to all of you for sharing your stories. You can email us anytime at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.